Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my new podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. So here we are on the other side of an election day that turned into an election week, leaving Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. celebrating his elevation as the president-elect, and Donald John Trump squawking, moaning, pouting, whining, and spouting utterly baseless assertions about electoral thievery, voter fraud, and mail-in ballot hoaxes. In the real world, as it exists outside the president's addled imagination on this Sunday night, November 8th, Biden is sitting on 290 electoral votes and an extremely narrow lead in Georgia, which is headed for a mandatory recount. If Biden holds on there, he'll wind up with 306 electoral votes, which just so happens to be exactly the same number that Trump won in 2016. And we all remember what Trump called that, do we not? That's right, he called it a landslide. For the rest of us, however, the meaning of this election is more ambiguous. On the one hand, we have Biden receiving 75 million votes, more than any presidential nominee in history, and Democrats winning the popular vote for the seventh of the last eight elections, something no party has done since the creation of the modern party system in 1828. On the other hand, we have Trump securing more than 70 million votes, the second highest total by any nominee in history, and 8 million more than he snagged in 2016 and Republicans gaining seats in the House and, at least so far, holding on to their majority in the Senate. To help us understand what occurred and why, what kind of mandate Biden can claim, and what this election says about us as a country, I have summoned two of the smartest people I'm lucky enough to know to join us on the pod. The first is Maya Wiley, civil rights activist and professor at the New School, former chair of the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board and former counsel to New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, and current candidate to succeed him in that top job at City Hall. The state of our union is hopeful. We have seen the historic level of voter participation because we have a historic vice presidency and because we have the opportunity now to solve our divides. Our second guest is John Meacham, presidential historian and Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, former editor-in-chief of Newsweek, and New York Times number one best-selling author this year of his Truth is Marching On about John Lewis and notable endorser of Joe Biden at this year's Democratic National Convention. The state of Joe Biden's mandate is historically within the mainstream. He's polled better than Harry Truman and John Kennedy, Richard Nixon. He's polled equally with Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan in 1980. He's polled better than Bill Clinton better than George W. Bush in 2000, and the same as Barack Obama in 2012. So the mandate will be what he chooses to make of it. A few moments ago, I said that Maya Wiley and John Meacham are two of the smartest people I know. But beyond their intellectual candle power, both Maya and Meacham, M&M as I'll call them here, have had important experiences in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt put it, and those experiences give them valuable perspective on the topic at hand. In Maya's case, her time in city government and her recently launched campaign for mayor of Gotham City, and in Meacham's case, his longtime relationship to Biden, which extends not only to endorsing the former vice president and speaking at the convention, but to helping write some of Biden's most important speeches this past year, including his victory speech on Saturday night. As it happens, Meacham's role in crafting Biden's address was only revealed the day after we taped our conversation for this podcast. So while we do talk about his endorsement and convention appearance, we do not discuss his role as a behind-the-scenes wordsmith because we, like the rest of the world, had no idea about it until now. In truth, however, the main reason I wanted to have Eminem on Hell and High Water wasn't their smarts or their experiences, but their wisdom. And it's wisdom and perspective and the ability to go beyond political analysis and place the events of this charged and convulsive moment into the proper historical, social, and cultural context. It's these things that we need most right now as we head into a future that undeniably feels brighter with Trump's exit from the White House on the horizon, but at the same time remains clouded by profound uncertainty about who we are and where we're headed as Americans. For countless Democrats, after four years of Trump and a 2020 that's been genuinely apocalyptic, dominated by a pandemic that's cost nearly a quarter million American lives, a devastating recession, and horrific incidents of police violence that spurred nationwide racial justice protests, which in turn led to the President of the United States ordering the tear gassing of peaceful demonstrators in Lafayette Square outside the White House, For Democrats and others surveying all of that, the only outcome in the election that would have made sense was a sweeping and thoroughgoing repudiation of Donald Trump and his party. But that, manifestly, did not happen. Instead, what we learned last week is that America is even more divided than we thought, perhaps more divided than it's been since the Civil War. What to make of all that? What happens now? 
and how to cope with the overwhelming mixture of contradictory feelings that are gripping so many people right now. Elation and relief, to be sure, but also confusion and fear. So, to help us process all of these feels, let's welcome John Meacham and Maya Wiley to Hell and High Water. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney once wrote, History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme. With passion and purpose, let us begin, you and I together. So that's Joe Biden from the Democratic Convention, uh, citing one of his favorite poets, Seamus Haney. And we are now here with my dear friends, Maya Wiley and John Meacham. Guys, it's great to have you here. I'm going to come back to that poem in a, in a moment because I think it has a lot of um, resonance and a lot of potential meaning that I'd like to unpack. But before I do that, as we sit here on Sunday, uh, the day after Joe Biden became the president-elect, just tell me about like your experience of this kind of unprecedented election week. And by that, I mean the kind of emotional experience of going through election night, the wait, and then the ultimate declaration of victory for Biden. What's that been like for the two of you? Maya, go ahead. Oh, well, better than Steve Kornacki's. <laughs> you know, I obviously, like so many Americans, experienced it first with tremendous hope because I spent the day going from poll site to poll site with this incredible uh, conviction from poll workers uh, about what they had seen in early voting that we had already seen historic levels here in New York City and around the country of folks coming out to vote despite some of our concerns about coronavirus, uh, not to mention the mail-ins. But to leave that level of excitement and hope and then to start witnessing the returns, which very quickly made clear that we were not going to see what I certainly had hoped for, which was a, a United States of America perfecting its union, standing up and saying we have to do better than what we have done for the last four years, that we have to denounce hate, that we have to refuse to listen to lies. That was devastating. And at the same time, you know, as I, like everyone else, was watching returns, trying to get information from folks who were on the ground or who were talking to people on the ground and what was happening in places like Pennsylvania, like Florida, and uh, simply to kind of rest in a hope that we were still going to see a historic victory, which we have seen. I spent a lot of time thinking about what we were going to do after there was a declaration of victory for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to right this ship, to uh, do exactly what we heard them talk about last night, which was how, how are we going to solve divides in which we don't even see or recognize our problems as shared? And that is a monumental task, I think, that lays ahead. John, my, my wife, um, who's wildly overeducated, not quite as overeducated as you, but wildly overeducated, <laughs> lives with someone who's pretty into politics. <laughs> Is that part of her service project to live with you? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, she's interested in politics. She's like a lot of Americans, really, really smart woman who's not a political person, not in our business, but who, you know, was obviously was, was very uh, verklempt <laughs> for most of the Trump term, but who has, has a lot of composure. And I will say, you know, she was very nervous about uh, about things throughout this election, nervous on election day, nervous on election night, nervous as the as the waiting proceeded. As I kept trying to explain to her by about Wednesday that it was clear that Biden was going to win, she would not really believe that. And then yesterday when the announcement came, she burst into tears and could not stop crying for hours. And it was just like she sort of said, you know, I feel like all of the stress and all of the anxiety and all of the tension and all of the fear of four years just like cathartically just poured out of her. She was just uncontrollably mm -hmm. emotional yesterday in a way that. I don't think she expected to be, you know, she she was obviously felt like there was a lot of line, a lot on the line in this election, but did not expect to spend two hours in a state of uncontrollable sobbing. I don't yeah. expect that that's how you spent yesterday. But <laughs> I but but I am interested because and we'll talk about this more in a second. You you know, you were more involved in this election in a different way than you had been in any election past. Again, and we'll get to that. But 
How did you emotionally experience the moment when it finally came yesterday? It's a great question. And Maya has, uh, as ever, a, a better sense of the pulse of that complicated and amazing city in the north. You know, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. We're a blue dot in a red sea. But I live in kind of a red dot within the blue dot. Uh, Al Gore lives a mile one way and Bill Frist lives a mile the other way. So right. it's an interesting uh, place in a tactile sense to, to try to understand what's going on in, in the broader political world. You know, as you were asking the question, I was thinking about one of our last pre-COVID gatherings here, and it was in our house, it was with, and I don't think they'd mind me saying it, uh, the dean of the college at Vanderbilt, who's married to Al Gore's chief of staff, mm. Beth uh, Alpert, uh, I'm sure you know, um, and the former governor of Tennessee, one away, Bill Haslam, and mm. his wife, Chrissy, and, and me and my wife. And we did the usual dork dinner game of who was going to win. All three men predicted Biden. All three women predicted Trump. Mm. And not out of hope, but out of fear. Yep. And so I live in a house. Uh, my son and I are outnumbered three to two. Uh, my wife and my daughters were following Clark County and Allegheny County provisionals in a way that, trust me, four days before, uh, I don't think they knew what a provisional ballot was because they're healthy citizens of the Republic. Right. <laughs> they were crying. And there was a kind of elation in a way. For me, it was a relief, honestly, because I believe that we've been living through a season of darkness in America. Uh, I believe, as I suspect both you and Maya do, that you can disagree with Joe Biden on lots of things, but he is a fundamentally empathetic, decent, dignified, good-hearted guy. He's just a good man. and. My experience was tempered optimism, and it was only tempered by the historic nature of the vote, which is to say, and that, that this is a little counterintuitive, but to me, this was an ordinary election in that it was 50.5, or it might inch up to, might get to 50.8, right, by the time it's all done. For Biden. Yeah, for Biden. And I will, I will, you know. I was thinking, you know, if this is 53 or 54 in a non-structurally partisan era, that's like the old 58, 59. Yeah. Right. And so I'm optimistic because I don't think Donald Trump should be our president. I think Joe Biden should be. But it was tempered by the fact that 70 million Americans assessed the evidence of the last four years and said, yeah, let's do that again. Yep. Right. Exactly my feeling. Um, and I think the feeling of a lot of Democrats, you know, how could you witness these four years, the cruelty, the vandalism, the incompetence, the perfidy? I mean, we spent four years saying, you know, Donald Trump is governed in a divisive way, not like any other president we've ever seen, all of whom have tried, sometimes have failed, sometimes have succeeded to bring the country together. To increase their support, you know, especially a president who wins with having lost the popular vote, you get in the first thing you do, you're, you're George W. Bush, you win a very contested election in 2000. The first thing you do is you go and call Ted Kennedy and say, we need to do a big bipartisan education bill to kind of, to, to, to be, I need more people in my coalition. Trump never did that, right? But we all said, hey, there's no, he's not gaining any votes for four years. You know, it was like he's got his base, he served his base, but he hasn't gained any votes. That was the kind of premise that a lot of people operated on. And then to look up and see that he actually gained 10 million votes is a freaky thing for a lot of people. And it, I think, has as much as there's been tears and elation and relief and all of those things and cathartic, you know, outpourings. Everybody, I think, is in a place, anybody who's, who's a thinking person who thinks about politics at all is like a little bit like, yeah, but, you know? Yeah. And American history turns on, yeah, but, or, mm. and yet. And I would argue, just for what it's worth, I'm not even talking about the perfidy and the cruelty, which are self-evident. I just, on a basic, are you better off than you were four years ago? The basic Reagan-Roosevelt question. 
Roosevelt had asked it. Reagan used it so brilliantly in Cleveland in 1980. And I just, except for 401k Trump people, it's hard to argue that you're better off. So that means that the culture and the identity and the caricatured fear of what Biden and Harris might represent was far more decisive and is far more ambient than I expected. It hasn't that been far too much the history of the United States, that very thing, that experience for folks who are Black in this country, who are elated, by the way. <laughs> it's like, let's mm. just be clear. Mm. As I was elated yesterday and dancing in the streets with, you know, everyone from folks from labor unions to racial justice groups to just any old body who showed up in the street to dance, it also, the devastating part of it, to the point that you're both making, is that it wasn't a rational vote for so many people who were voting against their self-interest and rather voting for some sense of an identity of an America that, A, has never really existed except in our darkest, in in the darkest recesses of our history, and that our hope from 2008 was this steady path to finally doing what Barack Obama constantly called us back to, which was to perfect our union. And that what the legacy of Donald Trump has been is to deepen our divide, including stoking hate, uh, ripping babies from mothers, Mm. to have the cruelty to say to a court, have his attorneys say to a court, our attorneys, the people's attorneys, that it was okay to deny children in detention blankets, sleep, toothpaste, and soap. That, you know, when folks said this, including Barack Obama, said this is not who we are, the devastating part of this election has been, yeah, for 70 million of us, maybe it is. That's a great, I, 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 I sought, and I'm happy to talk about this, I sought Mm. for more than a year when Vice President Biden would say, this isn't who we are, Yes, to say no. This is who we are. I I succeeded a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a constant refrain for you, John. It's who we want to be. And that's different. Mm. Yeah. And that's different. And, you know, one way to think about this in an uber dork way is, (laughs) uh, which is why you have me. is Trump wanted to take us back to 1955, and Joe Biden is a creature of 1965. Mm. Mm. So I want to just think about Joe Biden. I want to talk in a lot of detail in the second part of this podcast. I want to talk about African-Americans and, their, and what happened in this election. I want to reserve that for a, relative, a pretty deep dive. But before that, I want to just talk a little about Biden himself. I was just reading, I was struck by this New York Times passage this morning in the Jonathan Martin, uh, Alex Burns piece this morning, the kind of big like TikTok of how Biden won. And they wrote, it was not the most inspirational campaign in recent times, nor the most daring, nor the most agile. His candidacy did not stir an Obama-like youth movement or a Trump-like cult of personality. There were no prominent reports of Biden supporters branding themselves with Joe tattoos or lionizing him in florid murals or even holding boat parades in his honor. Mr. Biden campaigned as a sober and conventional presence rather than as an uplifting herald of change. For much of the general election, his candidacy was not an exercise in vigorous creativity, but rather a case study in discipline and restraint. I excite that because it leads me back to Seamus Haney. So, you know, Seamus Haney, hope and history rhyme is the key phrase in that piece of the poem that Biden loves so much. Every time I hear hope and history, I think man and moment, the other dyad of words. And I really think as I as you read that version of who Joe Biden is and how he campaigned, it feels, yes, hope and history for sure have met in a way in 2020. But I think more, in some ways, more pertinent is the way in which Joe Biden, as a particular kind of man campaigning a particular kind of way at this particular moment, is really the story of what this election is about. So I ask you, as I say that to you, do you say, think to yourself, yes, (laughs) yes, there is that, I mean, it feels right to me that Biden was, I think that Biden's the only Democrat who could have won this race. Looking at the results now, you know, I don't think there's of all those people Absolutely. who ran the 322 Absolutely. Democrats. I just don't see mm-hmm. another one who could have won this race. I think I think Donald Trump would have crushed any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's right. I, what came to my mind was women who weather the storm, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say that I do think that to your point, John, we 
are a nation that needed to be called back to decency in a crisis that also required just sound management. And that that, in the context of COVID, became the clarion call. And that that is what people were willing here in New York City to stand in line, sometimes for four hours, four hours for in early voting despite COVID, that there, that there was you know, this great sense of existential crisis that required a steady hand. And I think you said it best early, which the, the, the decency of a Joe Biden, the, the idea of this person who not only has been in senior management and government for so many years, who knows what happens in the room where it happens, but who also has this very deep sense of what it means to survive tragedy. And that that was resonant in a nation that has been surviving tragedy, that has seen so many people die, that has witnessed not just our economy gutted, but the tremendous humanitarian crisis and displacement that comes from that. And that 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 became what so many folks needed to be able to rally around and to hope that we could also call more people to. And I think that's why he was a powerful candidate. Yeah, John, I, I, I met him in 1987. He came to Northwestern University and spoke maybe the fall of 1986 as he was getting ready to run for president in 1988. My first job out of college was going to be working on the Joe Biden campaign in 1988. So I took a gig. Um, I was going to work on the Illinois team back at a time when the Illinois primary mattered. So I went off in the summer of 1987. When I graduated, I went off to Europe to screw around like one does after graduating. And then when I came back, the campaign had collapsed in, in, in the way that it did and the accusations of plagiarism and fabulism and all the things that destroyed Biden. So I've known him for a long time, right? And if you look at the history of Joe Biden, the first presidential race, a disaster. The second presidential race, a disaster saved by the elevation of the vice presidency, but a disaster. I'm terrible. You know, the life obviously, you know, marked by these incredibly devastating tragedies of both the wife and and, and child and then Beau Biden. I mean, his life has been, he has been a successful American politician, but there have been as many, as many failures, embarrassments, tragedies, traumas, as there have been successes in his career. And that obviously all feeds empathy, which everyone correctly, and I think in a cliche, it's not a cliche, empathy is his superpower. But I do think that even before COVID hit, you looked at that and you thought, well, this is his superpower. It is a, the, the, all of those failures and all of that trauma and all that tragedy and all that difficulty. Those are the things that add up to a huge asset as a candidate. And then COVID came and it was like, you could not have built a custom candidate more precisely tailored to this moment. And all of that against Donald Trump, who was, of course, the antithesis of empathy, the antithesis of humanity, a person who has none of that, right? That's a speech rather than a question, but it feels right to me that that is true. And often it's the case in politics that large structural forces matter more than these personality traits. But I think in this case, the personality trait was really important to allowing Joe Biden to win. Oh, I think we have a great case study in how both matter and you take one or the other away and he doesn't win. So the biography mattered and the pandemic mattered. Mm -hmm. Does anybody here doubt that absent COVID, Trump wins, given what we've seen? No. It looks pretty clear to me. You know, people like me make our living believing that character matters, Uh, that in extremis at critical moments, whether it's the timing of emancipation or the expansion of the public sector in the early 1930s or the recognition on the part of two vice presidents who became president, uh, Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson, that they should transcend their provincial origins and do big things for the country itself, um, that those those moments all mattered. John Kennedy's capacity to learn from making mistakes from the Bay of Pigs to the Cuban Missile Crisis. We wouldn't be here if he had made a couple of different decisions in October of 1962. And so... When people sometimes wonder, well, do we focus too much on the presidency and not enough on the people and not enough on Congress? Yeah, but, you know, when they're putting missiles in Cuba, it's the president who who matters. Um, 
I, I think that when the history of this is written, uh, it will be a man and moment thing. I think it has a chance not simply to be a Teddy White campaign narrative or a book you may have heard of called Game Change. Uh, it will go beyond that because, as Maya was just saying, Biden has an interesting combination of things. One is he's got the empathy. He's got the character. He can project it because it's real. But he also knows how to fix something. And the thing that makes me think that a year from now, we could be talking about a pretty popular President Biden is he has a clear case study, real issue that affects every single American right in front of him. So it's not just the forces of decency, it's the forces of science. If he can get us all to wear a mask, mm. and I think there are going to be Republican mayors and governors who are going to secretly love that they can now blame Biden yes. for more stringent policies, yes. right? They can run against him at home while actually taking care of the damn thing in their constituencies. So he's got a real issue here to fix and produce self-evident results. So I think there's a little bit of a runway here that also has the virtue of helping all of us. And um, I just keep going back to, I'm, I'm thinking of it as it's the 70 million question. Mm. What was it when you're given this choice in this moment with the self-evident facts of the case that you thought, I want that guy to be in charge of the health of my family? All right, we are going to take a little break to uh, do some advertisements to pay some bills at this podcast, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, something I said a minute ago, which is I really want to go deep on on black voters and black culture, political culture in this campaign, and then we'll come around at the end to having a little bit more of a dark discussion about Donald Trump and Trumpism when we come back with Maya Wiley and John Meacham on Hell and High Water. Congressman John Lewis, before his passing, wrote, democracy is not a state, it is an act. And what he meant was that America's democracy is not guaranteed. It is only as strong as our willingness to fight for it. To guard it and never take it for granted. And protecting our democracy takes struggle, it takes sacrifice, but there is joy in it. And there is progress because we, the people, have the power to build a better future. That was Kamala Harris giving a speech in Wilmington, Delaware, before Joe Biden gave his speech. A thing that Joe Biden was not given the opportunity to do by Barack Obama in 2008 or 2012, very much uh, an optional thing. Not all presidents do that, but this is very much, uh, I think, an appreciation both of the importance of the vice presidency by a former vice president and also someone who also an act of a president elect who saw in this moment that history was being made and history was being made more by his running mate than by him although he got more popular votes than any anybody ever running for president in the history of the country. The reality is that the first female vice president, who also happens to be non-white, is a big deal. And it's funny, I say, Maya, this, I ask you this to start, you know, obviously when she got picked, people, you know, were like, hey, this could be a historic. And then she became more or less, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, she became a conventional running mate. She was, I think she performed flawlessly, frankly, as a running mate. But it was a weird campaign in a lot of ways. She had her debate with Mike Pence. She did very well in that debate. She did the job of a running mate. She went on the running mate's journey. She made no notable mistakes. She took her the shots she needed to take. She did the work she was supposed to do. And then yesterday, all of a sudden, again, in the same way as I talked about my wife bursting into tears, all of a sudden it was like the appreciation of a lot of people for her. I've never seen the emotion on the part of 
the members of a party on on the moment of a victory at a presidential election. I've never seen so much focus and so much emotion directed towards a running mate. Like all of a sudden it was like everyone was talking about Senator Harris because that the history of it just smacked everyone. And I just thought that, you know, the image of her, all of those things that made her seem like a, a presidential candidate who has so much potential back when she first started to run, the modernity of her, the mixed family, the the ethnic background, all of that, man, women all over the country were riveted by the sight of her, by the sound of her in a way they hadn't been really in the last past two or three months. All of a sudden it was very, very present, I felt. And I would love to hear your reflection on what it was like as a woman of color to see a woman of color up there on that stage, elevated to the second most powerful office in the land. I am so proud to be American today. Last night was for me as a black woman living in central Brooklyn, the borough that produced Shirley Chisholm, who was the first black person to run for president in 1972 and who founded the Congressional Black Caucus, that to watch Kamala Harris stand up there and be, not just say, be a Black woman with an Indian mother (laughs) and all that that represented and shy away from none of it and embrace all of it And to do that in the service of calling us all to a hope, to a hope for something radically different from from where we are, was exactly the kind of inspiration that I think so many of us were fighting for in this campaign. And it was an, an inspiration that we knew that Joe Biden wasn't going to bring. Not because we didn't think Joe Biden was the person we should vote for. Not because we didn't think Joe Biden uh, was anything other than decent when we needed decency, was competent when we needed competency, but that it was Kamala Harris that created a sense of hope that we could get back to the hard work of becoming the America that we have aspired to be and never quite become. And that for me was so, so real. And so powerful. And so many of us were saying to each other and looking at our kids, and I have two daughters, and knowing that it matters. It is symbolic. It doesn't change the structure yet, but it matters. And so there are times when I don't even have words for that emotional sense that I have around that. And John, she got up there and she started the first words out of her mouth were Congressman John Lewis. Yeah. A man um, who who has always loomed large in our politics, um, or who has loomed large in our politics since he first became a figure in our politics in the protest movements of the late 1950s and through the 1960s. A man who loomed large in a lot of people's imaginations for a long time, but particularly in this year because of his death, suddenly became in kind of a, a pervasive presence in this campaign that he would loom so large at least unexpected to me, not that I didn't appreciate his, his, his import, importance in American history, but just he, everywhere you turned, there was John Lewis. And as it happens, you have written a little book about him that I think is a great book, but its success owes a lot to talk about man and moment. This is like book and moment, right? It's like those of us who've written books understand that timing is a large part of, <laughs> of success. You can write a great book that sells very few copies and you can write the same book at that different year or a different month and it it gets it gets it, it lights up the bestseller list and so it says i take nothing away from the success of your book to say that you also had the luck of timing sure and, and again even when he passed even with all the outpourings of emotions it wasn't as clear to me even in his death that he would be so ever present in the campaign in the discussion and the discourse his the images of him um, would be so ever present as it turned out to be and then to have her get up there and cite and have the first words out of her mouth be john lewis really striking to me and i'm sure to you Absolutely. And the reason I did the book was I was standing in March with John and Speaker Pelosi and a thousand other people, Senator Harris, on the Pettus Bridge. And 
I was lucky. I I knew him for 28 years. I know exactly the moment I met him. Uh, it was actually during a Georgia Senate runoff. So all things come full circle. And as he was speaking, and I was looking down at the, I was there with my kids, and um, and I was looking down at the Alabama River and the Pettus Bridge. For those of you who haven't been there, it's not a small bridge. No, it is not. It's way up there, yeah. and it is a hike over that bridge, uh, both literally and obviously metaphorically. And my argument about him for a couple years has been that his religiously inspired witness, which found political expression, was perhaps the tonic for the times, because there are so many people who profess an allegiance to the gospel who don't practice it. Mm -hmm. And more than anyone else I've ever met uh, in public life or private life, John Lewis closed the gap between profession and practice. And he did so with this relentless focus, first on undoing Jim Crow, and second on access to the ballot box. And part of the majesty of what John argued and, and fought for was he wasn't asking for special treatment. He was asking that we actually just live up to the words that founded the country. And I think the other part of this, so I, th I think part of it is the faith. The other part is I have an argument that no one's signed on to yet, but I keep making it, so I'm going to keep going. We'll call it the Heilman Doctrine, uh, if it works. Um, in this debate over were we founded in 1619, were we founded in 1776, were we founded in 1787, were we founded in 1865, the country that just elected Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Harris was founded in 1965. We are 55 years old. That makes John Lewis, with Dr. King, with Ella Baker, with Septima Clark, with Diane Nash. A founding father. Yes. That's it. And so it's like Andrew Jackson talking about George Washington. Yeah. Because the multi-ethnic democracy that we have that is a close-run thing, as Wellington said of Waterloo, is a product of a half century ago. And so to invoke John Lewis is to invoke an American founder. Yes, and I think it's really telling of her, of our vice president-elect, that, I mean, it was obviously not an accident that she cited him as, as she did, you know? Let me throw, John, let me throw something in here because yeah. I, I don't think I've ever sure. told the story. Um, so because of COVID, of course, the, the funeral rites for John were constricted. Um, Speaker Pelosi very generously invited me to the rotunda service when he lay in state. And I had a conversation, socially distanced and masked, with Senator Harris. It was before she went on the ticket, after she was out of the race. And she walked over and she said, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that man. And she pointed at the casket. So in her imagination, I just remembered this anecdote as, as, as you were talking. In her imagination, he is omnipresent. I want to ask a large question about race in this election, which is not directly, not specifically about her, but about the broader phenomenon, right? So this year, this kind of apocalyptic year, 2020, you know, pandemic and depression scale recession, you know, the third leg of the, of the stool of terror has been, you know, the, the issues related to racial justice triggered by the execution of George Floyd on television in May, uh, unleashing, you know, protests and sometimes worse around the country, around the world. And we had this moment in in late May, early June. Maya, you were out. I remember talking mm -hmm. to you when you were out, like going, just basically going from protest to protest every day for a couple, a few weeks. Everyone was swept up in this moment. Racial reckoning was what people talked about. We were having a, a long overdue racial reckoning. And now it's November. And in October, at the end of this campaign, you know, apart from Donald Trump, you know, trying to turn some of these issues the, what he saw as riots or what he described as riots in places like Portland or Kenosha, apart from trying to run the, the Nixon-Wallace playbook and to run the Law and Order campaign. What we didn't have was a 
large-scale discussion of police reform, of criminal justice reform, of prison reform. We did not have that. The the obvious implications, where at least some of us thought where we were going to go from the moment of protest in the early summer, where we thought that might go, how that might play itself out of the presidential campaign stage, was where that would be a central issue. You could argue that COVID just sort of pushed everything else out of the way. It was so large that everything else got shunted to the side. But it is the case that the racial reckoning was not central to the discussion, at least that the mainstream media and that those presidential candidates, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, had in an active way. It was discussed somewhat, but it was not front and center in the final month of our campaign. I think that's fair to say. So I want to ask you both. I mean, I'm looking at turnout data here. You know, there's some places like Georgia uh, where Stacey Abrams, with all of her work, seems to have moved the needle on black turnout uh, and registration in Georgia. And Georgia is now apparently looks like a battleground state. Joe Biden could win Georgia. An incredible thing. First Democrat to to be able to win Georgia since Bill Clinton in 1992. Part of a larger potential realignment across the Sun Belt. Um, we could spend all day talking about those things and really geek out. But if you look at Pennsylvania, at least on the basis of the exit polls, and the exit polls may be flawed, and there's a lot of reasons to be a little bit skeptical about them. As you look at the exit polls, it's not like you know there was a vast increase in black turnout in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan as a percentage of the electorate. They are very close to what they were in 2016. And Joe Biden's performance with them is very close to what Hillary Clinton's was in 2016. It's buried a little bit up, a little bit down in various places. Donald Trump did better with black voters than a lot of people thought he would. It was rational to expect him to do. He did better with Hispanic voters in a kind of meaningful way. And and again, I point to Georgia as an, as an example where it may have been, where black turnout may turn out to have been pivotal in a big change in our how we conceive the electoral map. However, I just, I lead all of that to ask you guys the question, in the year of George Floyd and the year of the racial justice reckoning, as we sit here today, what are the implications, the takeaway, the impact of that moment that felt tectonic over the summer and seemed to have receded to a significant degree from at least, again, the front and centerness of our public discourse? Was that all just like sound and fury signifying nothing? Or at other levels of our politics, is work getting done that is meaningful, but like just less visible uh, to the naked eye than it would be if it were talked about all the time on a presidential campaign stage? I'll say two things. One, this transformational demand that so many of us were marching for in the streets over the summer after George Floyd is not over. Those tectonic plates are still shifting. We are at a point, I think, where the focus on getting Donald Trump out of office, of trying to win back the Senate so that the some of the reforms that we know to be so necessary to ensuring that if you are Black, if you are Latino, that you are safe in your own streets and safe uh, from police abuse was, was one that required this election. And that secondly, as we know, and, and, and most of us who are marching knows that the work that we saw that resulted in the demonstrations over the summer began with Trayvon Martin. They didn't begin with George Floyd. Here in New York, we had had Eric Garner in 2014, the first I Can't Breathe. And this work had been building and building, as is so often the case, we do have these inflection points, these moments where it becomes so obvious to so many who didn't understand just how serious the problems are. And COVID did that as well, because as we know, if you were Black, if you were Latino, you were twice as likely to die from COVID. So it, it, it unmasked what we all on cable news started naming structural racism, which was not even a mainstream term before this. That's not gone. And I think that's one of the reasons why there is a lot of inspiration in Kamala Harris's address last night. And it is also something that the that the outcome of this election, the fact that there were 70 million Americans voting for Donald Trump, despite all that we saw, demonstrates that we have a long road and a lot of work before us. Typically, I think about this historically. Um in July 1964, Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. In remar- his remarks when he signed it, he talked about he dated the founding of the country at Jamestown, uh, not at Philadelphia. 
And four weeks later, five weeks later, he did everything he could to keep Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party from being seated at the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City because he thought it would hand as many as 12 to 13 states to Goldwater. The same man, same country, but he, there was a push and a pull. And I think there's a push and pull on the part of white Americans, most white Americans, many, many white Americans, between understanding that we are stronger the more widely we open our arms and the more we recognize equal justice under law and an elemental fear of the other. And I just think that's the fact. And I go back to 70 million Americans thought Donald Trump should be in charge of their affairs for four more years. Not just on matters of race, but on matters of health and security and economics. And so to go to your central question, John, which is, is there anything happening as opposed to we have framed this as a moment of reckoning, but reckoning actually suggests action. I will say this. If anybody can get that step beyond the recognition to a genuine reform, I think it could be the combination of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I don't mean to invest them with divine attributes, <laughs> but that is a ticket that looks like America. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you've got a 76-year-old white guy who's more comfortable in union halls than he is at the Metropolitan Club, and you've got this demographically diverse woman at the other end of the hall. And they're both United States senators, and so they understand that speeches matter, but legislation changes reality. I'm going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and talk about a topic that I know you're both going to just really find uh, disturbing, but that we must confront, which is the Donald Trump of it all uh, on Hell and Hot Water. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. So that's Donald Trump on election night, <laughs> declaring himself the winner saying that the counting should now stop because he's seen enough. He's like Dave Wasserman. He's the Dave Wasserman of, of, of presidential <laughs> of, of presidents. He's like, I've seen enough, guys. Uh, stop the counting now. Uh, I have won. I've won. So there's a lot, so much to say about it. But I think the first place to start is with those statements, as extraordinary as they are. I have a, a two minds about it. And I'm, I want to know what you guys think about this, because my reaction first was to be appalled and sort of be like, you know, this is a act of, of aspiring autocrat, uh, an authoritarian, a dictator. You know, this is the kind of thing that if you saw this in, in a foreign country, you'd be like wanting to send in election observers because of uh, because it's so obviously off the off the chain. On the other hand, I just had this feeling of like, yak, yak, yak. Like, you know, the president's up there saying all this stuff. Stop the count, he said. And then the next morning, the count proceeded. No one stopped. There was no force and effect. Everybody in all the states where there was still counting to be done kept counting. And people were like, okay, whatever, you know, Trump can say this shit and what's the difference? So I ask you guys whether, you know, I, obviously the answer here doesn't have to be either or this, this, that's a false binary. You can be both disturbed by this and also regard it as, again, sound and fury signifying nothing. But how do you think about that and what it might portend for days and weeks ahead? You know, this is something that people were very concerned about. What would Donald Trump do if he lost? Um, what would he do in the days between the loss and his ostensible departure from the Oval Office. So hearing those things coming out of Donald Trump's mouth filled you with what reaction? I'll jump in. I, I think that the transition of power, the transfer of power will unfold according to uh, ordinary constitutional means. 
And whether he concedes or not is irrelevant. Whether he shows up at an inaugural or not is irrelevant. The question to me is, I, I think it was sound and fury. <laughs> and you may remember the, the initial passage of that, of course, from Macbeth. Part of it is life is a tale told by an idiot. <laughs> signifying nothing. Uh, so just to play a little Shakespeare dorkdom for you. Um, but, 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 to me, the genuine question is, of those 70 million Americans, how many of them are going to continue to listen to him? Because this is a, he will never not be saying what he is saying. Right. Right. So this is, we are now hearing the refrain that he will speak to his last. My rule is 34% of Americans will believe almost anything. Uh, I base that on, that was the number that Gallup found in a poll for the Washington Post in 1955 of Americans who still thought Joe McCarthy was right. Mm. All right, so 34% is kind of yeah. my base. But we have 47% of the country that voted for him. I'd feel a lot better if this were 40%. Uh, 47% is a big number. And of that proportion, how many people will continue to listen to him and to what extent does that undermine not the legitimacy of Biden's presidency? That's beyond, I think, question. But as a political matter, what percentage of Trump supporters will believe him and will listen to him in the coming years as they begin to field other candidates or field Trump again? Which I don't think is beyond the I don't know, John, what do you think? I, I don't think that's impossible. Not at all. I saw John Meacham on MSNBC yesterday, Maya. He's on MSNBC all the time. Yeah, again, talk about yak, yak, yak. Um, so he's on television and Didn't he said I have this to interrupt thing. you a couple of times. Yeah, that's correct. I saw him yesterday. He said this thing, and this goes beyond the question of right now and Trump and the transition, but what we're going to face as we head into 2021, right? Meacham said something like, I believe this is the quote, when we look back, it may well be that this was the beginning of the end of perpetual partisan warfare. And when I heard that, I thought, um, what is my friend John Meacham smoking and where can I get some? <laughs> um, that was my first thought because I'm like, they obviously have some really, really good weed in, in Bell Mead. Um, I, need to get, I, need to get, I, need, I need to get down there. I, I, I bet Tipper Gore is, is, is somehow involved in, in, uh, in John's and how John scores down there. Um, does that sound right to you, Maya? Like, does that like, you know, the end of perpetual partisan warfare or do you like me think Man, Mitch McConnell tried to fuck Barack Obama from the day he arrived yep. in office, and Mitch McConnell is likely, not certain, but likely to be the Senate Majority Leader going forward. And and I, is really Mitch McConnell gonna be like ready to to lay to be to treat Joe Biden differently than he treated Barack Obama? I I don't know. It doesn't strike me as obviously plausible. Oh, I, I am completely with you, John. Uh, I do not believe that anything has shifted. Uh, in our politics because of this election, which is part of why it was, despite my incredible elation in this historic moment and the importance of having these two competent and principled leaders at the helm, coming into the helm of the country, that we have, we did not win the Senate. Uh, we have the possibility, possibly, of getting to 50 plus one if the runoffs in these Senate races in Georgia go the way I think many of us will be fighting for them to go. But that fundamentally, it is about the number of people serving in Congress and in the Senate to help deliver the kinds of policies that are rational for serving our people, and that we don't have that, at least right now. And that even with a 50 plus one, I think we can expect to see deep partisanship. It is, however, why I want to go back to the point about how much the election of a president and vice president does matter. One, to get that one vote in the Senate is a tiebreaker if we get to 50. But two, because if you think about some of the most devastating things that Donald Trump has done, he has done it with executive power. He has done it with a henchman called Bill Barr, who has served not just as the defense attorney in chief, but has served to stoke lies and even high data on white supremacy from Congress in talking about where our greatest dangers and fears should lie. And that is something we will get back under rational leadership uh, and under someone who I have no doubt will be an amazing appointee for the job of attorney general and for other positions. 
So that does matter. And what we have to do is really demand that a Joe Biden and Kamala Harris do everything in their power to use every power of that office to serve the people of these United States and to do it in a way that also makes transparent and more available to people the actual facts that we need to determine what policies we should support. May I defend myself from the future mayor of New York? And you? <laughs> yes, I, uh, I was, I definitely was going to let you let you try to. I mean, that's we're not I appreciate your position at this point. I probably should have said mindless partisan warfare, but but uh, but I'll well. defend what I said anyway. <laughs> now we're grading on a curve here, counselor. But if you got significant a significant response to COVID, if you got COVID relief, if you perhaps got an infrastructure bill. If you got the Justice Department in a depoliticized place, is that not progress? We're all, it's, of course, there's going to be partisan warfare. I mean, I, and if you if, if you really want me to to start, we can start in 1790. But I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to inflict that on you because we're all tired. But my whole view of, of history is it is a it is perpetual conflict. It's an arena of contention in which politics is the achievement of temporary dominion of one interest over another until the other interest gets its temporary dominion. But there is a chance here that we can get some big things done, and maybe it'll be two or three, but that's a two or 300 percent increase over what we've done since 2017. I want to end with this. I want to end with Trump, with his departure. My main question to both of you is like, you know, as we sit here now, Trump, you know, regardless of what you think he might do, we're going to be vigilant. We're going to keep an eye on him between now and January. But I think we all three would say that he's going to be he's going to be gone and not out of our politics, not out of our lives, not out of our minds. But he's going to be out of the Oval Office come January 21st. And already there's a weird feeling that he's a little bit like peripheral. (laughs) You know, it's like amazing how this happens every four years. You know, all of a sudden the center of the universe is now Wilmington, Delaware. And like all of a sudden we're following Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris and their every move with the kind of obsessive interest that happened. This happens every four years. And every time it happens, I'm still amazed by it. Like how the moment that that switch is flipped, it just the world changes. It shifts on its axis and, and it's a different dynamic. So all of that is happening, but it is still the case that the, the the impending departure of Donald Trump from the White House is a big fucking deal for everybody. And I know for the three of us who have, you know, been publicly making a lot of arguments related to this for now for the last four or more years. And John, I really want you to just talk about this and then Maya, I'll let you close. But the main, I would like you to walk in the door this way. You spoke at the Democratic Convention And I remember on the night of the Democratic convention, I was there in that parking lot outside the Chase Center where Joe Biden was last night. And you were broadcast on a giant wall. And I took a picture of it and I sent it to you an email Mm -hmm. from my hotel in the middle of the night just to kind of like, here's you on the big screen. And we got into a little back and forth in email, which was about something you had said on TV that night about kind of explaining why you had decided to depart from the normal role of a journalist, which you were for a long time and still are to some extent, but more a historian now, but, you know, compatible. You would never, they would never have contemplated speaking at Bill Clinton's convention or George W. Bush's convention or Barack Obama's convention or anybody else that you and I have covered. And yet you did at this one. And your explanation for it was, I thought, super powerful and compelling and goes to the thing that that I want to end with, which is what it means now to be on the brink of of Donald Trump's exit from from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So just talk about that with that prompt. Sure. Uh, and I hope this is what I said to you that night. Uh, I loved the picture. Uh, one of the things is you all, as you're if you're if you're Heilman listeners, you know that there is no better friend than Heilman and no more passive aggressive friend <laughs> than, than, than Heilman. So, uh, so uh, if I had been born 20 years before I was, I don't know where I would have been on civil rights. I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm a white guy from a particular part <gasps> of the white? world. <laughs> Talk about breaking news on this podcast. I know it's disappointing, but I like to think I would have been on the right side, but I don't know, honestly. 
there was never a majority of the country that was, for instance, approved of the March on Washington. Uh, and so it's a little bit like when Gallup went back in the field in December of 63, Kennedy won with 82 percent of the vote. Uh, they said they'd all voted for him. Um, but I know where I am on this one. And I believe that Trumpism represents an existential threat to the country and the institutions that I believe, for all their imperfections, produce the greatest good for the greatest number in a fallen, frail, and fallible world. And I wanted to be on the record. I remember, you know, the thing that it triggered for me was a thought about, you know, the first time I ever went to jail was... Um, was it no no was was it was a, <laughs> the first time I ever went the first time I was ever arrested was was pro, was in a pro, an anti uh, a, a divestment protest mm-hmm. at Northwestern University like in late eighties in college in colleges across the country people who were like you know in my frame of mind where there was lots of protests about trying to get institutions to disinvest from South Africa uh, and I remember at the time even thinking about like it was the question of what would you do if you were in South Africa in the early 1980s, would you have been on mm-hmm. the side of Mandela? Would you have done, would mm-hmm. you have, you know, if you were white, that is, and, and living in South Africa, would you have been one of the rare Afrikaners who was like, you know, who was down with the right, were history the right place to be? And your comment about that made me think about that. And we went back and forth about it a little bit. And it did obviously trigger something for me because there's never been a president I've covered that I've talked about the way I talk about this president, you know, never. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, whether it's been John McCain or Mitt Romney or, or George W. Bush, I've covered a lot of them. And you know, never thought any of them were unfit for office. And so deciding that someone was unfit for office, not a partisan thing. It was like, this person is dangerous and unfit for office. And it's, it changes the way in which I talked about this president. And I'm very glad to be going back to a world where I can start to not do that anymore, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, in some ways is what, I mean, apart from the larger question of what it means for the country, just in a personal sense, that is the return to normalcy that I am, that on some level, I'm just so like, this is, <laughs> I'm glad to not have to be in a position where we have, to, we have to do these things, things that, you know, you would never have wanted to go and speak at a, at a convention. Mm-hmm. I would never have wanted to be on television every day uh, criticizing a president in the way, in the in the florid way that I do because of the fact that he seemed to be unfit for office. And so that is one of the things that I like at this moment, we're sitting here going, what does this all mean? Well, it means that that will no longer be the case, you know. Before I concede see the balance of my time, one of the things that I think looking forward, this goes to a question a second ago, is. There's an argument that this is that Trump has been the last reactionary gasp of an anxious white America. But he may not be the last gasp. And that we have to stand eternally vigilant about. Because as people have pointed out, what if this guy were actually a good authoritarian? Yes. And I think that's a very good Last question to you, Maya, which is a different way of framing the same question that I wanted both of you to get at. What does it mean that Trump is on the brink of exit stage right? I mean, there's an Atlantic story, like literally the headline of it is what what Meacham just said, which is America's next authoritarian will be much more competent. Yeah, Um, that's the headline of this Atlantic piece. And so I guess that is a good way to end this thing, Maya, with your reflection on is Donald Trump the last gasp or is Donald Trump not the last gasp, and that there will be a a vibrant competition among a lot of nativist, xenophobic, uh, racist Republicans who will now be vying to lead the Republican Party in in perfect symmetry with and in sync with the Trumpist impulse and the Trumpist doctrines that have been established over the last four years. Yes. Donald Trump, as horrible as he's been, is also a symptom. You know, hate was on the rise before Donald Trump was elected. Hate groups were growing before Donald Trump was elected. We saw as a retrenchment and a reaction to having the first black president of the United States, part as the election of Donald Trump. And as we have seen in this vote that we have just witnessed, this is very, uh, yes, four million more popular votes for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but far too close a margin, uh, and that represents a continuing existential crisis. Because I think John Meacham was absolutely right. You know, John, when you went, took us back to when was the country founded, 1619 or 1965, we have never addressed 
that if we truly want to be an inviolable democracy, if we want to be a democracy that is one that we can't imagine sinking into authoritarianism, that it means that we fundamentally face what we have still not faced because the voter suppression, making it difficult for people of color to vote in this country, started in depth in 2010 and was part of what helped bring us Donald Trump. And we still haven't fixed that. And Donald Trump has now given us a federal court that is, it it has been made in his image. And that is not something that a Joe Biden and a Kamala Harris can easily change. And that means vigilance is not enough. That what we actually have to do is fight for changes that are structural, that protect our democracy. That's a great point. You guys are, um, are super smart and also super nice for doing this. So thank you for spending the time. I think that was a really, a really like an excellent conversation. I had hoped that our conversation Can we would be go excellent. back to one thing? So what yes. was the second time you were arrested? <laughs> oh, I, I did. Do you think there's only been two? Oh, I just want to, I want to run through chronologically because I can't believe it was all protest. No, no, it was not all protest. The, 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 the second arrest was the first of my drug arrests. Let's put it okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I, just, I wanted that to be on the record. You wanted the yes. admission. John, John, John Meacham also has an honorary law degree now. <laughs> Amazingly, I was arrested more than one time before I even left college and for a variety of things, some noble and some maybe less noble, depending on your point of view. Um, guys, thank you uh, for spending the time. You're awesome. And, um, it is a fucking relief yeah, in a way, a, right? It's whatever a, else, good luck, whatever Maya. Say about good luck, thing, Maya. Thank, how thank many you. days? How many days to the election? Oh yeah, I, you you. It, it's June twenty second is the primary, and in New York City, it's going to be a primary election. You know, that's the anniversary of when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Oh, good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I don't know if that bodes well or I not, but keep that in mind. Say. Hopefully it doesn't bode at all, bode well or bode badly. Let's just, let's just hope that has no relationship whatsoever to Maya's, to Maya's primary run. Let's, yeah. let's, let's leave that on the side. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, it was a pleasure and a privilege. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to John Meacham and Maya Wiley for being on the pod. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a nice rating in the Apple Podcast app. It helps people find out what we're doing around here. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle research. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 